Well, today we're find ourselves going through John once again in the Incarnation series, and we're just about wrapping up chapter 3. And so we'll look at a few things. In fact, today it's going to be funny. Some of you are math people, some of you are science people, and some are very much not math or science people, but I have a term. I wonder who knows this term. There's something called an inverse correlation. Have you ever heard of that, an inverse correlation? We'll look at an inverse correlation today, actually two of them. Inverse correlation is a relationship between two variables in which when one value decreases, the other one increases. If you have a glass of water here and you have it 100% full and you start pouring it out, as you pour more water out, more air comes into the water. And it's, now, the, now the air volume is higher than the water volume. It's, it's directly related, but it's inverse correlation. Or the, the time you spend in bed. The more time you spend in bed every day, the less you have to get out there and do whatever you're going to do. Inverse correlation. One goes up while the other goes down. So we'll be looking at two of these inverse correlations today. Think about this as we go along. And they have to do with one is between darkness and light, and the other is with you and Jesus. Amen. And so by way of introduction, just to let us know how we got here today in John 3, verse 19, Remember last week we talked about the most famous verse in the New Testament, probably John 3.16, and, and we had to go back a little ways to John 13, or John 3.13, about where that thought began. And so, to give us context, there's so much in these verses that God gave us, we need to sometimes go back and find the beginning of the, of the context, beginning of the thought. And so today we'll do the same thing. We, we're just looking back quickly to see, to get our, our bearings about where are we diving in here in verse 19. So last week we talked about how... Uh, the Lord saves us. He, he loved the world and he sent his son, his unique son, to save the world if they believe in him and, and we would not perish but have eternal life. And so that's where we are going in now to verse 19. <clears throat> We've been talking about, through all of chapter 3, how salvation works. We were told that God loved his creation and his pinnacle of creation is humanity. We were made in his image and that he made it possible for us as fallen creatures to be saved. He didn't have to do that. But he made it possible for that to happen. And how did he do that? By sending his one unique son, Jesus Christ. And that all believe, who believe in him will not perish, but they'll have eternal life. So that's where we are as we dive in today. And we read last week that all who believe are not condemned. Praise God. All who believe are not condemned. And also that, on the flip side, that those who do not believe are condemned with that qualifying word, already. They're already condemned before they don't believe or before they believe. It's the default state of man. The default state of man is fallen and sinful and, and we're condemned. We talked about the reason for this being Adam's sin in the garden. It all started with our great-great-great-great-grandfather Adam. When he sinned in the garden, we're told in Romans 6 that the wages of sin is death. And so now we all must suffer physical death because of Adam's sin. And so typically we'll read the entire passage for the day and then begin. But today we'll read the passage in two parts. So I'll read the first part and then we'll go through it and then later the second part and we'll go through that. And so remembering where we are in our context, having just been told that all mankind is condemned already before they believe in Christ, we'll begin in John chapter 3, verse 19. And we read, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. 
For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we're once again here before you in reverence as you speak to us through your word, which is alive and active. Pray, Lord, that your spirit helps us to understand and that the truths within this passage become clear to us and applicable for our lives even today. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And so verse 9, I'll read it once more. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than light because their works were evil. We have to go back again, like I mentioned. Remember that we're starting today in verse 19, and we can't really just dive into a verse that starts with the word and, right? It's one of those transition words. Remember, therefore or for. Last week it was for. For God so loved the world. What's the for? Therefore. What's the and here for? We're told last week God loved humanity in this way. He gave his son, unique son, that those who believe in him have eternal life. And it also talks about an abiding condemnation that if, if we don't believe, we're already condemned. It's an abiding condemnation, an abiding state of doom or judgment. Now, the word for condemnation is judgment. And so John is telling us this is that judgment. This is what the judgment is. This is why it's here. And so we're looking into that today. That judgment is death, and it's because of sin. Uh, your first note says, we're all condemned to suffer physical death because of sin. That's the reason. If Adam wouldn't have sinned, we wouldn't have had to die. But because they sinned in the garden, they must die. What did the Lord say? He said, because of this, now you shall die. This very day, I tell you, you'll die now that you've, you've sinned. So we're all condemned to suffer physical death because of sin. Wages of sin is death. And it reminds us of Romans 5 where Paul tells us, and this is continuing from Jake's earlier reading, in verse 12 it says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and so death, and we can think back, and in this way death spread to all men because all sinned. So because Adam sinned, we all, as humanity, as all of his children, must also die physically. He could think, well, we've all been judged already to some point. We're looking forward to Judgment Day. Christians look forward to Judgment Day when our sins are, when we're redeemed because Christ has covered our sin. Unbelievers should not be looking forward to Judgment Day, but ours is a hopeful judgment where we'll be found innocent because of Christ's righteousness. But you could think, on this, in this realm, on this earth, We've all been judged or condemned to die at least physically once. <clears throat> and so this judgment needs to somehow be removed, right? It must be removed from us to have eternal peace with God. You know, if you're convicted of a crime and you're found guilty, you're pretty much, that's the end of the road. You can appeal and everything, but it's really hard to uh, appeal and win. But at some point, if you're found, the DNA was found, that someone else proves that, that you didn't do it, well, then your record can be what they call expunged. It's like it never happened. We need that to happen for us to live in eternal peace with God, don't we? We're found guilty in sin. We're all sinners. We know that. We need that to be removed somehow. But we can't, here's the problem, we can't remove it. There's nothing we can do to work it off or to do something or do enough good deeds or 
pray the right prayers to remove that. We, it's outside of our capabilities. We can't remove it, not without God's intervention. And so again, verse 19, I'll read it. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because the works were evil. So this beginning phrase, and this is the judgment. Paul's going to let us know, or John's going to let us know what it is. The NIV reads, this is the verdict. If you're guilty, that's a scary word. The verdict is in. The jury is, is in. And they come back and they say, guilty. We hear this legal language being used here in this situation. The New Living Translation renders it this way. And the judgment is based on this fact. So we're getting to why. Why this judgment? What's well, based on this one test? Let's read the test. Let's read the fact. In verse 19, it says, This is the verdict, as the NIV says. The light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than light. There it is. Here's the test. This is the standard that we are measured against. The light's come into the world, and Adam, we, all humankind, were presented with the light of God. He walked with him in the cool of the day. And he said, I just have one law for you to keep, one rule. Here's that law. Don't eat it from that tree. That was the very first test, the standard. And we chose darkness. Adam and Eve, our first parents, chose darkness. And we didn't just choose darkness. The Bible here says we loved it. And it doesn't just say that we loved it more than light. It says that we loved it rather than light. Now, when you say that, it means instead of light. We said yes to this, but no to that. It didn't say we love this a little more or a little less. It says we loved it instead of, rather than. We didn't choose light. None of us chose light. Ever. Nor would we ever. Give us a choice a thousand times. Give Adam a choice a thousand times. He would have chosen darkness every time. We would have chosen darkness every time. Think about the scorpion last week stinging the frog. From last week, he would have stung the, the frog every chance he got. Why? Because it was his nature to sting the frog. It's our nature. We're like the scorpion. It's our nature to sin. Again, the, does a baby sin? A little baby, six months old, doesn't know where he is. He just knows he's hungry and he's going to cry if, if he's hungry. But you let that baby grow up and he will sin. 100% chance. It's our natural fallen state before Christ. It's our nature. And as, as fallen humans, we chose, we'll choose darkness every time. And you know what? Before Christ, we'll love it. That's the state of man, the default state of man. And an important point here is to understand that we're not sinners because we sin. We're not sinners because we have sinned. We sin because we're sinners. We sin because it's our nature to sin. And, and we are completely hopeless without God's intervening in our lives to save us. Well, someone might say, well, someone along the line must have chosen light somewhere. How many billions of people have ever lived? There must have been one or maybe two that chose light. At some time, or maybe some at times we must have chosen light, right? Well, let's look at Paul's inspired words in Romans 3 about God's indictment, another legal term, about mankind. 
God's indictment of mankind. Romans 3 says, We have already charged or shown that all, both Jews and Greeks, doesn't matter who you are, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Your next note says, no one is righteous or seeks for God before salvation. We just read Paul's words inspired by the Spirit. We need to think about these kind of things, this indictment before we get big heads about how great we are and about how holy we've been. This is the default state of man in his natural state before Christ. Our works were evil and we were running from God as fast as we could because of Adam's sin. And so I go on in verse 20. We read, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And I know this is one point that we can all relate to. We've all done wicked things. We've all done wrong. Sometimes we like to make it softer and say we've made mistakes. We've missed the mark. But we've all done wicked things. The Bible doesn't hold back here with these words. The, the terminology is stark. When we do these things, we want to keep them hidden. Don't we? When Adam sinned, what did he do? He hid from God like that's possible. He hid. He was ashamed. But you can't hide from God. And your sin has to be dealt with. You can't hide it forever. And we've all been there, each one of us, after we sin, we're embarrassed and we're ashamed and we don't want to face the consequences. We don't want accountability, that's for sure. It's uncomfortable. Awkward conversations. People are going to be there. They're going to see what I did. We want to stay safe in the shadows, in the darkness. Hiding. Because we know that our sin is ugly, and to God, it's repulsive. Those who do wicked things hate the light. They're not neutral to the light. They stay away from the light. And the last thing they want to do is come to the light and have everything they've done be exposed and have to face the music. We've all been there. You've been there. Do you remember being there? That's not a fun place to be. In the darkness, hiding, hoping they won't ask that one question. Hoping they won't look in that one drawer. They'll be exposed. We've all been there. And if we come into the light, our works will be exposed. And evildoers, and, and that's not much to qualify as an evildoer. It might just be a little deceit here and there at work or whatever it might be. Don't like exposure. But we as Christians, we don't stay in the darkness. Amen? Your next note says, at the moment we believe, we know that our sins have been dealt with. Praise God. We're not who we used to be. When we believe in Christ, 
we are forgiven and we live now in the light. And we can relate to people, every human on earth, as, as a worker of wicked things in our past. That old man that has died now for us. We can relate. But now we know we are forgiven, we live in the light. And sometimes we're tempted to hold on to those things and they drag us down. And even if you're, a, if you're a believer in Christ, you're a child of light, you don't have to carry those burdens anymore of shame and guilt and, well, those things I did last year or 10 years ago are really still dragging me down. Don't do that. That's been wiped away. Your sin has been dealt with. In his book, A Forgiving God in an Unforgiving World, Ron Lee Davis tells a reportedly true story of a pastor in the Philippines. He was a beloved man of God who carried the burden of a secret sin which he had committed many years before. He'd repented, but still had no peace, no sense of God's forgiveness. In his church was a woman who deeply loved God and who had recently claimed to have been having vivid dreams in which she spoke with Christ and he with her. The pastor, however, was skeptical. To test her, he said, The next time you speak with Christ in a dream, I want you to ask him what sin I committed while I was in seminary. The woman agreed. A few days later, the pastor asked, Well, did Christ visit you in your dreams? Yes, he did, she replied. And did you ask him what sin I committed in seminary? Yes. And in your dream, what did he say? He said, I don't remember. And in her thick Filipino accent, she continued, What God forgive, he forget. Now, whether she was actually speaking with Christ in her dream or not isn't the point of the story. But her words back to him, they're his question, makes a good point for that pastor to see whether or not she was speaking with Jesus. Her words are true. If God forgave me, he forgets about it. It's as if it never happened. So why are you still carrying that burden for something God forgot about? You see the point? Brothers and sisters, you don't live in darkness anymore if you're in Christ. You're now children of light. So travel light. Stop carrying the guilt and shame of the sin that God himself has forgotten about. Amen? He wants you to live free from that because you are free from that. Don't think you're not. You're now able, to use the metaphor, to not sting the frog on the way across the river. Now you're able to not have to do that. You can say, well, I used to sting frogs all the time as a scorpion. And if you're missing that metaphor, look at last week's message. But now I have the, the freedom not to sin. Before I didn't, I was bound by my sin. I would sin every time. But now in Christ, he's given me the freedom not to sin. So now we contrast those who continue to do evil to those whose eyes have been opened by the Spirit and now do good by God's grace in verse 21. We contrast. It says, but whoever, in verse 21, whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out by God. These are believers in Jesus Christ. Not ashamed of their works or deeds. They don't mind the light. Sure. You want to see what I've been doing? Sure. Come on in. And since God has, as Ezekiel says, changed our hearts, and since God has, as Peter says, caused us to be born again, we now come to the light. 
It's an action toward the light now as Christians, as believers. We love the light. It's where we feel at home because we're children of light. Now we have no fear of our works being seen for what they are. We don't mind if people come and check us out and what we're doing. Look at all our closets, so to speak. We try to live integral lives because we try to be righteous like our Father in Heaven. We try to do these righteous deeds because we're trying to walk in what God has set us up to do. We're doing the good works for which God has set before us. We're told this in Ephesians 2. This is a famous verse. Ephesians 2.8 For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not a result of works. So that no one may boast. Here it is, verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Before the Father drew us to the Son, we still had hearts of stone. Before God breathed a new spiritual life into us, we loved darkness. But now we love the light. And now the darkness we hate. And it it's, doesn't make us feel comfortable anymore. Your next note says, God made us to do his work for his glory. You say, well, what, why did God even make human beings? Everything God does is for his glory. He made us to glorify him. And we glorify him by doing the good works that he set out beforehand, as it says in Ephesians 2.10. And later in Ephesians uh, chapter 5, it says this related to darkness. At one time, you were darkness. Listen to that. Not you were in darkness. At what time, you were darkness. He says, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Well, it just said that we used to be darkness, and now we're charged to expose darkness. Now that we're in Christ, now that we love the light, now we actively expose the unfruitful works of darkness, and we don't want anything to do with them because he has made us children of light. We're not just okay with the darkness anymore. Before, we loved it. Maybe in some transitional period, it was, you know, we're neutral to that. But when we're a child of God in Christ, we're children of light. We stay away from the darkness, but away from the dark acts, the unfruitful acts of darkness. And not only that, but we expose the darkness. That's a complete shift, you see. And so we're charged to do that. And so now for the second half here of the reading, it's a little bit of a longer reading, but a few points from it. John 3, beginning in verse 22. It says, After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Enon near Salim because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness. Look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. 
John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he who God sent utters, has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains upon him. A few points from this passage here. I'll read verse 22 through 24 again, and then we'll look at what it says here. After this, in verse 22, remember, Jesus and his disciples went now into the Judean countryside and remained there and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Enon near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized. And this happened before, of course, John the Baptist had been put in prison. So now we're switching the type of text we're reading. In the previous passage, we're reading something called a didactic text. It just means a, read, a, a, a teaching text about how salvation works, and that was kind of a big chunk. But now we switch into a narrative again. So we have to just always know where we are in, in the Scripture. So now we see a, a narrative, something that has happened. And we see that Jesus and his disciples are baptizing, and John the Baptist, the Baptist was also baptizing nearby, and he had his disciples there, and they saw Jesus baptizing across the river and said, Hey, John, what's going on with this man again, Jesus? You know, a lot of people are kind of going over there now. Should we be worried about this? Are you okay with this? this is, they're new to this. Jesus just came on the scene publicly. And here's a side note here. We're talking about baptism. There's many different types of baptism in Christendom. There's the, the dunking, the immersion. Uh, you know, there's sprinkling, or there's sometimes they pour uh, some water over a baby's head. There's a believer's baptism. There's infant baptism. Different types of of this. And just as a side note, so we're more uh, well informed here about what we believe in, in is biblical here at Christ the Word, at least. Our English word "baptize." Where does that come from? It sounds a lot like the Greek word "baptizo." They just transliterated the Greek into the English. Didn't know what to do with that word, so they just said, let's just make it similar. It's baptized. And this word, baptizo, means immerse. It means dunk. You know, dunk something all the way under something else. Immerse. So that's where we get the term immersion. We believe in immersion as the biblical way of baptism. And I believe that, the, that immersion is really the only way, if someone's watching this happen, someone being baptized, They're watching something. They're seeing someone going under the water and coming back up. This is a picture of something. It's a picture of of Christ's death as he goes down into the grave, and then again his resurrection. And if someone's watching someone else get sprinkled or have water poured out, it doesn't have the same effect because his death and resurrection, you know, our baptism is also symbolized in that because we go down as Christ went down. In our case, a watery grave, 
the old man that we used to love, love darkness, is dead now. He, he died. And he comes up in new life in Christ. He's resurrected. And now he's a child of light. And so the very visual act is a testimonial for your faith, what you believe. Later, because back then they didn't have microphones and speakers, they saw some people you know, off uh, in the distance being dunked in the water. And they said, what's that about? Oh, that's the, the Jesus people. They believe you know, he hadn't died yet. But once he had died and rose again, that all made sense. And now we continue that ordinance of Christ to this day. And now when people see people being baptized over at the lake, they know exactly what's happening. They're reminded of, oh, those people are Christians because Jesus died. They went down. He come, they came up. They were resurrected in Jesus Christ to new life. So this idea that we believe in, this baptism by immersion, this is why, where it comes from, why we believe that's true. And that's why the, we believe it's the biblical way. We're identifying with Christ. We're identifying in his death. My old man has died now. I'm not the same person. And I identify in, with him in his resurrection. I'm a new person. I'm a new creature in Christ now. I love light. In verse 23, it says here, John was also baptizing at Enon near Selim because water was plentiful there. Do you need plentiful water? How, how plentiful does your water need to be if all you need to do is sprinkle? This is one of the reasons we believe they were immersing people. It also reminds me of when Philip baptized the Ethiopian eunuch. It said that they both went down into the water. Sounds like a lot of water. You know, so we believe here in immersion. Side note. Okay, verse 25 as we continue. It says, Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the, the Jordan, who, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. They were thinking, John's disciples were thinking, well, we've been the ones baptizing. You've got this baptism ministry, this baptism to repentance. And now Jesus comes and now he's doing baptism. He's kind of doing our thing. And more people are going over there. Are you okay with this? And so John the Baptist has something to say. They brought a concern to John the Baptist, and, and he said uh, in verse 27, John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. Of course John is okay with this. He told his disciples before, I'm not the Christ, I'm announcing the Christ. I'm proclaiming the Messiah. I'm not him. I'm not the light. The light is coming into the world. Remember, guys? Because he was saying, you bore me witness. You heard this, right? He was reminding them. I expected this. This is the plan. Nothing's changed. And so John, we see, is perfectly content for this to be happening. He's content for the crowds to be going after Jesus. In fact, that's the whole point of his ministry. Proclaiming Christ. Now that Christ is here, he says, yeah, go. There he is. He's here. Please. And he was reiterating all this to his followers. And as we become individually more visible within our church body, stronger in our faith or leading groups or small groups or teaching classes, whatever it might be, we should also be joyfully delighted for people to follow Christ, not us. John the Baptist didn't want his followers just to follow him. When Christ, when they found out who Christ was and, and who he, what he was doing, he said, yeah, that's, go to him. We don't want to be tempted to just have our own personal followers. And John the Baptist is a testament to that. Your next note says, 
Like John the Baptist, we should always be joyfully pointing others to Jesus. Joyfully. It's not about us personally. It's about Jesus. We're just like John said when they said to him, who are you? He didn't even say who he was. He said, I'm just a voice crying in the wilderness. And we go on to verse 29. says, the one who has the bridegroom, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. John's still speaking. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. John the Baptist says, my joy is complete. You want to know if I'm okay with this? I love this. My joy is complete. The bridegroom is here. And he says, he who has the bride, the people, the, the people of God, he who has the bride, the, the crowds, he's the bridegroom, not me. And he says, this makes me joyful. And he must increase, but I must decrease. John says, now my duty is complete. And I must kind of take a back seat now. He's here. He's increasing now. He's confirming Christ. John explains this to his disciples, that Jesus is the bridegroom. People are going after him. He's the head of God's plan. He's the one that's really driving the train there. <clears throat> because he's the one who rightly has the greater following now, and that's become apparent. The crowds are going, they're being drawn more to Jesus now, and that's a good thing. John's role is diminishing and coming to an end, and John the Baptist has complete joy in it. He must increase and I must decrease. Here we see this inverse correlation. As he's increasing in our lives, Jesus, we decrease. As he is relied upon more, we rely upon ourselves less. Those two can't go up at the same rate. And as this happens, we live in increasing light. And the darkness that once surrounded us diminishes. Your next note says, in our lives, Jesus must increase. Simple. And we must decrease. In every way. We have more faith in ourselves than we do in Jesus at times. We mentioned that last week, I think it was. We say that we don't, but we do. We always have to check our hearts with that, check our minds, and really rely on Christ. And this message is what we really need for every single day of our lives. We need to be reminded of this every day. More of Jesus, less of me. I need more of Jesus, less of me. More reliance on Jesus, less reliance on me. More trust in Jesus, less confidence in me. Because there is more hope in Jesus than there will ever be in me. Isn't that true? Have you tried to rely on yourself 100% for something and it's just not going to happen? What will we ever learn this, I wonder? Some of us are seasoned in our faith and we still need to learn this and be reminded of it. And so John continues talking with his disciples in verse 31. He, is, he says, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He repeats himself there. He's further making the case here that Jesus is his rightful superior. He sandwiches himself being from earth, speaking in an earthly way, 
he, he says before and after that, he who is from above is above all. And then he says it again after he says that I'm only from earth. And he says again, he who is from heaven is above all. Validating Christ once again to his disciples and to us. Verse 32 says, he bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. You think about it here. He's telling his disciples, John the Baptist's disciples. He's giving it to them straight. He's saying, Jesus here is from above. He knows all. He's a first-hand witness to the actual, ultimate, and objective truth of the universe. He's the best eyewitness we could ever have. He's telling us and people rejecting him. Greatest eyewitness of all time, Jesus Christ coming in as the light of the world, testifying to the world of the highest truth. And people love darkness and reject the light, reject his testimony. And on the whole, the world rejected his testimony, his message. But there is hope because some don't reject it. John says those who do believe in him, who believe in God and his truth and his message through his son Christ, shall live. Just because most people don't doesn't mean that you can't. Some do, and, and they live. There's a well-known Bible commentator named Albert Barnes from about 100 or so years ago, and he has an interesting take on this phrase, to set his seal. We read in verse 33, whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. And his commentary reads like this, to seal an instrument is to make it sure, to acknowledge as it as ours, to pledge that it is true and binding. And when a man seals a bond, a deed, or a will, believing a doctrine, therefore, in the heart, is expressed by sealing it, or by believing it as we express our firm conviction that it is true, and that God who has spoken it is true. We vouch for the veracity of God and assume as our own the proposition that it is the truth of God. Those who receive Christ's message and seal it in their hearts that God is true will live. Your next note says, When we seal God's truth of the gospel in our hearts, He seals us by His Spirit. And you know, you can't pull one over on God and say you believe and really don't. You might be able to fool me or your friends and family, but God knows your heart. If you've really sealed it in your heart, I believe this. I trust him. I believe his promise that he will raise me from the dead, wash my sins away. He knows. When we believe in Christ because of his message, his gospel, we seal it in our hearts and then he seals us until the day of redemption. We're told in Ephesians 4, we're sealed by the Spirit until we see him again in glory. And John continues in verse 34. He says, For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. In the Scriptures we see that the Father sends the Son and he sends the Spirit. And we see that the Father and the Son both send the Spirit. And in the Old Testament, which is where, remember, John the Baptist is still living because Christ has not instituted his new covenant in his blood yet. 
They're still living under the Old Testament system and law here. They knew it well. In the Old Testament system, it's well accepted and understood that the Holy Spirit was administered in a different way than it is in the New Testament. Joel 2 prophesies that in the last days, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. In that Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was given to the people in the upper room, the disciples, and Peter preached about how, he said, remember Joel chapter 2, this is being fulfilled today. The Spirit's being poured out on all flesh today, he said at Pentecost. So it was administered differently, the Holy Spirit. He was given in a particular way to people. He would rest on prophets or priests or kings or certain people, Elisha and Elijah. In fact, Elisha, remember in 2 Kings, asked for a double portion of the Spirit that Elijah had. The Holy Spirit was administered differently in the Old Testament. But here John states that Jesus has the Spirit without measure, meaning all the way. You know, in Galatians we're told that Christ is the Spirit. The Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God. In a way that cannot be measured, He's given the Spirit. In fact, He speaks for God. You better have the Spirit in high volume to be able to speak for God. Well, Christ is God on earth. He's incarnated as God on earth. And He has full measure of the Spirit. Again, John the Baptist is testifying to His disciples, yes, He is God on earth. Follow Him. I know you think, I was great, John the Baptist said, for my time, but now... He's showing them all these different ways and reasons. He's the man. He's the Messiah. Go to him now. And it's hard sometimes for people who follow different ministries or preachers or personal teachers, they almost follow them more than Christ at times. John the Baptist is probably the ultimate example of this. Even Jesus called him the greatest man ever born of a woman to that point. So his disciples must have really adored him. And it was probably tough and a challenge for John the Baptist to say, okay, Guys, you need to follow him. It's, it's not me. I was just leading you to him. So we have to do that too. It's about Jesus. Jesus was God on earth by his, his incarnation. And so John concludes chapter 3 here by restating the central message of the entire chapter. He says in the last verse, verse 36, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains upon him. That's a nice little summarization of what we've just gone through. And the last important note here is that John gives us two important verbs to look at. He says, if we believe in Jesus, we have eternal life. He also says, if we do not obey Jesus, we remain under God's wrath. So there's this distinction here between believing and obeying. And I wonder if we could make any inferences here. Can we infer that the gospel is something we either obey or disobey then? He says, well, if you obey, you'll have eternal life. must mean we, we can disobey the gospel. Have you ever heard it said that the gospel is a command? Jesus said, believe in God, believe also in me, in John 14. He said, believe in God. Believe also in me. He's telling people. He's charging people. I mean, look also in two examples here. One is 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul says, The Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel. 
of our Lord Jesus. The gospel is something to be obeyed. 1 John 3 says, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. I'm going to pause there. I put this in because this is important. Don't be fooled by your heart. Your heart's telling you that you're still condemned because your feelings don't believe it. Don't be remembering sins that God forgot because he forgave you, okay? Verse 22 of 1 John 3 says, And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. I'm going to read verse 23 again. And this is his commandment that we believe. He commands us to believe. And you know what? Some disobey that command and they don't believe. Is the gospel really an invitation, as sometimes we like to call it, an invitation? Does this sound like an invitation? It's a command. Believe. Or don't. And if you don't, you're under wrath. Are we being asked to RSVP? Let God know if, we can, if we're going to be able to make it? Or is the gospel simply a truth from God that we either believe or reject? Your next note says, It is God's command for us to believe the gospel of Christ. He doesn't ask us to believe. He tells us to believe. What does your mom or dad say? Clean your room. I'm not asking you, Right? <laughs> those who obey that command are saved in Acts 2 when Peter gave his sermon at Pentecost when 3,000 people believed scripture does not record an invitation he boldly preached that day the truth of the, of the gospel of Christ at Pentecost and Luke records what happens here as we come to the close after the people heard the harsh, the harsh truth of the gospel preached by Peter here's a couple of his words in Acts 2 Peter preaching at Pentecost says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. This is not a seeker-friendly sermon. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, basically, now what? Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Pretty effective message. He preached the truth. The raw truth. And it cut them to the heart. Doesn't the truth cut right through to your heart? Especially God's truth? We can do all we want to make it fuzzy and palatable for the masses, but the masses received the sharp words of God that day and it cut them to the heart. And it was effective because 3,000 believed. They heard the gospel preached and they believed, or they didn't. And after hearing it or believing it, they said, Peter, now what? What do we do now? 
Those of us who believe the truth that you're saying, now what do we do? And he told them. He didn't ask them to do anything. He didn't invite them to do anything. He just proclaimed the truth. And he said, now that you believe it, repent and be baptized. And he said, I'm not asking. I'm telling you. He gave them a command that they should obey. And this is the commandment that we believe. We all need salvation. And if we believe in Jesus Christ, we'll have it. And if we believe in Jesus Christ, we do have it. That is, if we obey the commandment that God gave us to believe in His Son. And if we do not believe that commandment, if we do not obey that commandment, we then remain under the righteous wrath of God. You see, Christians believe the gospel. Christians preach the gospel. And the lost are saved by the gospel. For the gospel is God's power unto salvation. Nothing else. The gospel is God's power unto salvation. Gimmicks never saved anyone. And hype never saved anyone. And the gospel of positivity, being nice and being a good person, never saved anyone. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ can save. And if you've realized today that you really haven't yet believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you're a sinner can only be saved by the ultimate sacrifice to cover your sin, you want to live in the light, then I charge you today, believe in Jesus. And I'm not asking. I'm telling you. That's the truth. Please stand with me as we pray together and close. Once again, dear Heavenly Father, I pray that your word takes root in our hearts and that we see the glory of your son Jesus and that we worship well through your spirit. Now that we know more about you and what you've done for us and how it's so important. Lord, help these things to take hold and help them to bear fruit this week and ongoing in an ongoing way. Lord, help us. There's people in our congregation that are here today with needs. You know them better than we do. And there's people here in our congregation that aren't actually here today, but they have needs too. And I pray that you bless them as well. There's some people home that aren't feeling well, people dealing with loss of loved ones. Help us to help them as well, Jesus. Help us to be your arms and feet on this earth, loving your people, doing the good work that you've set out before us to do. Help us to be like you. Help us to understand that you command us to believe. And help, that un- help us understand that our friends and family that don't yet obey your command to believe, they need you. And that we are the mouthpiece for you. As the holidays come up, give us opportunities to share with people that we love about you and to give them the gospel so that they might be saved and glorify you as well. We pray for your offering today. Bless it. Make it bountiful so that your work be done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This time the plate will come around for your offering, and then please stand as we worship one more time in song.